Spring forward, okay. <laughs> Last year, I did a whole spiel about how you need to go vote for this, uh, this bill that's in California State Congress to like make day- daylight savings time permanent. Um, so apparently, you didn't listen and didn't do that because we're still doing this. So I'm blaming you. Uh, this week, I'm a huge Kevin Costner fan. Uh, I, very, few pe- very few actors are able to demonstrate how much they love themselves in every single scene. Um, Kevin Costner is one of those. And this week, I watched uh, The Postman, uh, arguably his worst film. Uh, three hours long, and he's in almost every scene. And in every scene, somebody is worshiping him. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating movie. Fun to watch just for like, wow, I can't believe this got made. It's amazing. Um, nevertheless, uh, one of the things that the, the themes of this movie, it's a post-apocalyptic film, and in it, Kevin Costner plays um, a guy who becomes a postman, and he, he delivers mail in between all these uh, villages and communities that are, that are radically separated because uh, of the apocalypse or whatever happens, some kind of revolution. We're not exactly sure. So, so Kevin Costner, uh, he starts up uh, basically a post ser- postal service, and what, what happens is you start to see all these young kids uh, join him, and they begin letting these communities uh, communicate. And, and it starts to dawn on the, the viewer that communication and connection is um, it's critical, and, and, and there need to be messengers who bring that connection, who bring that hope to uh, other communities, other people. That's weird for us because that movie was made in 1997 before social media, cell phones, all of that. Um, and so it's, it's weird to see a movie where like connection seems so difficult, right? It's so easy for us. And yet ironically, uh, our, our communication has, despite the fact that we can do it all the time and we, we, you know, communicate with everyone always, the, the, the content of our communication has become really meaningless. I mean, if you think about the vast majority of text messages you send, uh, you think about the vast majority of emails that you receive or send, like it's, there's just not a lot of there, there. The, the, we've taken advantage of the fact that we have all this ability to communicate and we've stopped actually communicating or becoming messengers of things that are of value. And this last week, as we finish up our series in Jonah, we're going to see that what God's looking for is not just a bunch of communication. What he's looking for are messengers of grace. Messengers of grace. So let's take a look at uh, Jonah 4, the final chapter of Jonah. Uh, Let's read it together. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. We'll talk about this in just a second. And Jonah got mad. He prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, is it not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That, that This is exactly why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew, I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, oh, Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live and Yahweh says to Jonah, is it right for you to be so angry? Then Jonah went out of the city, that's Nineveh, and sat down east of the city, made a hut for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of Nineveh. 
Yahweh, appoint, Yahweh God appointed a bush. Uh, this word, we're not sure exactly what it means. It's, this is the only time it's used in all of the Old Testament, kikayon. Um, but it seems to mean some kind of growth, and I'll explain what we think in, in just a second. And made it come over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah's very happy. Oh, great bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry, this is another word used nowhere else in the Bible, uh, sultry, it's maybe related to the word for silence or secret, but in context we think it means something like scorched, sultry, hot. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, again, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be so angry about the bush? And Jonah replies, yes, angry enough to die. Then Yahweh said, you're so concerned about the bush for which you did not labor, which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. So shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and also many animals? This, what's Jonah upset about? Well, he's upset that, you know, if you were here last week, you know that Jonah, he, he did his worst possible job of trying to help the people of Nineveh. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them that I'm going to judge them. Jonah does, the, he only goes a third of the way into the city. He does the bare minimum. He doesn't even mention God. He just cries out, hey, uh, 40 days and Nineveh is going to get blown up. And then he, then he hightails it. He doesn't want to, that's all he does. He doesn't say a thing. And yet, By the power of the Spirit of God, this simple, terrible announcement reaches all the way to the king's ears. All of the people of Nineveh repent. They stop their violent ways. And God relents and God does not destroy them. And Jonah's mad. He wanted to see them all die. You'll remember that Jonah remembers that the the Ninevites there, the people of Assyria, the enemies of Israel, especially the northern part of Israel. And Jonah himself is a prophet who was the one who predicted that they would be pushed back from northern Israel. And that happened in 2 Kings. And so Jonah is the kind of guy who hates the Assyrians. He can't stand what they stand for. And he believes they deserve to be burned. And so when they're not, he's upset. He's upset because he knows so much about who God is. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. That God's anger, it's, he's slow. God's anger is a slow burn. God doesn't want to get angry. God, God refrains from getting angry as much as possible. Abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love, chesed, that's our, our, our favorite word here at Coast. It's that covenantal, uh, committed, loving embrace. When God commits to you, that's it, done deal. God will never stop being committed to you. And Jonah gets that. He knows that's the, the core, the heart of who God is. He knows that God's just waiting for an excuse not to punish And Jonah gets to be the one who, who visits that loving graciousness on the people of Nineveh. And he hates, he hates it. And all throughout the story of Jonah, Jonah's been wanting to die. And he begs God again, I'd rather die than see these people saved. 
It's not a matter of what Jonah knows or doesn't know about God. It's a matter of how that knowledge of God has or hasn't transformed Jonah. I've got a picture here of the uh, KC-135 Stratotanker and the uh, SR-71 Blackbird. Uh, some of you may know that uh, my dad was a pilot in the uh, late 60s, early 70s during, uh, during the Vietnam War. He flew the KC-135. His uh, primary mission was to refuel uh, our spy planes, the Blackbird, the SR-71, uh, high up in the atmosphere uh, so that the SR-71 could fly over uh, Russia, you know, Vietnam, any place where um, there were concerns about communist uh, insurgency or communist growth. And so the, it, it takes, a, takes a lot of fuel for that to happen. We still don't even, I don't think they've even released how high or fast the Blackbird was able to go, but it was a super secret spy plane. And, uh, and my dad was uh, charged with making sure that it uh, didn't run out of gas midair. He, uh, he didn't want to go to Vietnam. He did, um, and he uh, retired as a captain of the Air Force, four years honorable service. Um, he qualified on an M16. He almost cut his thumb off at, uh, and during um, survival training. Uh, he lost several friends um, in combat, one of whom was a helicopter pilot. Um, and, I, and interestingly to me, as I was growing up, my, my dad's always very interested in history, right? And specifically military history. Uh, he, he's a huge fan of the Civil War, Civil War buff, knows all kinds of things about the Civil War. Really, any, um, any really mil- military history, uh, you can ask him, he'll, he'll know all the things that you need to know. Revolutionary War, War of 1812, uh, you know, World War I, World War II, um, Civil War, uh, Vietnam, all the wars. He's read all the books. And he's not the only one. I know that there's a lot of uh, history buffs here. Uh, a lot of people are interested in military history and all those things. But it's, it's always interesting to me the difference between uh, the attitude that my dad has towards war, violence, guns, etc. Compared to the attitude uh, that people who've never actually been in combat have towards violence, war, guns, etc. And I've noticed this, it's not just my dad, it's really any veteran, uh, we have a number here at Coast, um, I know Mike and Steve, obviously, who have seen combat. Um, and it's very interesting, the attitude that they have towards violence, war, and guns is very different than the rest of us. I like to go to the range, get my Glock out, and be like, ah, yeah! And, and it's, for me, it's, it's sort of like a pastime, it's just a way to pass the time, have fun. Um, for them, it's, it's a much... Um, it's much different. There, there's a sense of, uh, well, because they went through it. They didn't just read about war. They didn't just read about military history. They experienced it. They lived it. And that's a transformative process. Oftentimes in a negative way, because war is hell. And so there, there's a massive difference between someone who can rattle off all the facts about how many Americans died in the Civil War and, and the way that my dad thinks about their sacrifice and their experiences because he shares something. He's been transformed by an experience that, that the, the professors and the PhDs and the academics have no, no idea about. Isn't it strange that Jonah has all the facts about God right? 
Right? He knows about God. He's like, God, I know that you're gracious. You're merciful. Uh, you are slow to anger. Your love is committed and steadfast. You do everything you can to relent from punishing. God, Jonah knows all the facts. He's got God pegged down, and yet his heart is so hard towards the things that God cares about. He's learned all the stuff, he's learned, but he hasn't been transformed by that. He hasn't been transformed by the experience of knowing God so that his heart is different. Instead, he's just like the rest of us. He hates his enemy who wants to see him die. And that's the first thing you know, Jesus. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. You see, the, the thing is, knowing God is, 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 is going through life with God and starting to be changed by that. Knowing about God is getting your PhD, being an academic, getting all the facts right. It brings up a question. How strong is your knowledge of God? Because we are a, we're a knowing God church. I mean, one of the foundation parts of our church is we are a Bible church. We want people to know about God. We want people to be soaked in Scripture. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We want us to be shaped and formed by the Bible. That is super, super important to us. And yet, if all of that learning, all that book knowledge isn't changing you, then what's the benefit? Some of us, I mean, I, in particular myself, I, I'm definitely transformed, change when I learn things. Learning stuff is what excites me and, and, and changes my heart. But that's not the case for everybody. Some people are much more like, you got to do it. You have to be a part of things, doing things. And that's what changes your heart. Well, if that's the case, then learning every single fact about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about heaven and hell and all those things, they're not going to benefit you a lot unless, unless they're changing your heart, orienting you towards the things that God cares about. And so it's gut check time. Are we just, you know, are we just learning for the sake of learning? Or are we learning to become like Christ? Because the danger is that we can know everything and still have Jonah's heart of hatred for our enemies. Let's go back to the text. So Jonah makes a hut for himself. This is a sukkah. Uh, if you're familiar with the festival of booths or tabernacles, that's a sukkah right there. This is a Jewish tradition uh, where they, uh, it's their, their harvest festival of sorts. And uh, what the Jewish people do, did and still some do, is they make these little huts. And they typically have uh, three walls. This one only has two. But there's three walls, uh, side, side, and back. And then there's like a, a covering. But the covering that you see up there is not a traditional sukkah covering. A, a traditional sukkah covering is uh, they break out branches and they, they lay them over the top. So they break branches off, they lay them over the top, and so there's like leafy, there's like a leafy canopy of sorts. And that's uh, where they kind of celebrate, they have a celebratory meal, there's different rituals, and they do it underneath this hut, the sukkah. We go back to the text. Um, God, so, so Jonah makes us. Jonah has a shelter, but it's not a great shelter. And it's all, it's very hot, and so you know when it's very hot, leaves crinkle and they break. And so he does have some, like a way to get away from the sun, but it's not awesome. Okay? So he's sitting in the shade, but it's not great shade, and he's hoping, <laughs> he's sitting above the, the city hoping that they'll stop repenting. 
right? He's like, like, man, if they just go back to their violent practices, maybe God will kill them. That's really what he's doing. Uh, And so he's sitting there, and then God uh, does something awesome. God God, um, appoints a bush. And again, like I said, we don't know exactly what this word means, but we have a good reason to believe that what God did is is, is, uh, made a live, you know, bush or vine or ivy or something like that go up and over the sukkah. So that where there was holes and it wasn't perfect shade, now it becomes a really thick, robust foliage. And now Jonah's got a really great place to huddle and wait for the destruction of his enemies. And he's super happy about this because God sees his discomfort, wants to bless him, and does. But then what the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So Jonah's very happy about the bush, and then God sends a worm to eat the core of the bush so that it dies and then shrivels up. And so he's back where he started. But it gets worse. God prepares a sultry, again, scorched hot. We're not exactly sure. We kind of get it. Uh, wind. And, and remember, the sukkah, is, it's only got three uh, walls, right? So Jonah's facing the city, and this horrible gust comes and blasts him in the face. And not only does it blast him in the face, it probably knocks the dead leaves off the top of his canopy. So now he's got no roof, he's baking, and the sun's beating down on, the head, on his head, and he asks that he might die. Is it right for you to be angry about the bush, Jonah? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'd just rather die. You're so concerned about the bush. You didn't make it. It just appeared. You didn't grow it. You didn't water it. And you're so, so very sad, so very angry about your bush. Apparently, they still have a monarchy in England. There are still kings and queens there, which seems very outdated to me, but what do I know? I uh, don't know much about the royal family, but I heard this week that um, one of the princes, his name is Harry, apparently he got married to a, like a C-level actress named Meghan Markle, um, and she's biracial, and that matters because she says, they had an interview with Oprah this week, and apparently they said that the royal family was very mean to them, and in some cases racist against them. Uh, and this is why, I guess, they've, they've stopped being like a prince and a princess, or they're like on hiatus, and they've moved to California. I think they're in California. I think they're in like L.A. or something. They got a mansion, which is cool. Um, and I, I, my understanding, and I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, correct me, but my understanding is that before they um, were... They had access to like something like $50 million a year. They've been cut off from, from the money, and so now they only get $10 million a year to live on. Um, which really, very sad. And uh, so they, they, they wanted to have an interview with Oprah to kind of air their grievances, to say, hey, we've been treated really, really badly by the royal family. And it sounds like it's been awful. Like, people have not been super nice to them. Um, again, the accusations of racism, which, if true, are horrific. Um, now, I didn't listen to the interview. I just read some articles about it. CNN's on their side. CNN says that they've been, like, treated badly. Fox News says that they're spoiled brats. I can't tell you. That, I, I really don't know. All I know is I'm looking at this, and I'm like, man, it must be nice to have those problems. <laughs> like, I mean, I... I'm not, not that my problems are that bad, but like, but like, wow, uh, geez, yeah, 
Um, speaking of which, if you're a big donor, I would love to get $10 million a year for this job. And the thing is, I would I actually do stuff, right? My understanding is they get $10 million for being alive. <laughs> like, wow. That's like the ultimate social security. Like, incredible. Incredible stuff. And again, I don't know. Maybe they, they probably have had a real rough uh, go of it. Um, but, but, is it possible, maybe, that they might have lost the thread here? <laughs> like, that, that maybe... Even if people weren't nice to them, I really don't know. You just have to wonder, is that, I mean, is that really worth, like, leaving in a huff, moving to Los Angeles? Dude, she was literally a princess. Like, isn't that what, like, my kids dream about being? Like, the, all their cartoons they see from Disney is like, be a princess. This chick got it. She became a princess. And she's like, eh, it's too hard. Too many demands. People are mean to me. I'm very upset. Very sad, very angry. And I, again, like I said, I don't know. They, they might be wonderful. All I know is that if, if that's all accurate, like, it does look to me a lot like the problems that we have with, you know, my generation, millennials, now these, uh, these Gen Zers or whatever. I mean, have you ever met, like, a more entitled like, snide, arrogant, ignorant group of people than my generation and the one that follows me? Like, we are raising garbage humans. Like, just garbage people. Awful, horrible people. Like, people who, who look around and they're like, and they're like, only 10 million a year? How dare you? Oh, I, you know, I, I'm sitting there. I've, my, what's been upsetting me the most this year is my inability to get a PlayStation 5, right? Like, how dare you? It came out in November, and I don't have a PlayStation 5? What's going on with this world? Good news, it's coming on Wednesday. Praise God. It's been, uh, it's been a rough go. But we're going to be okay, friends. Um, but isn't that odd? Isn't it odd that those are the types of things that make us upset and angry? Like, do we ever look and say, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Do we look and, and, and recognize that we are by far the most privileged people in history? That there has never been a group of people more materially blessed than everyone in this room right now. And yet you take one little thing. Oh, I wanted my PlayStation 5. I wanted my, I want to be a princess. You take that away and suddenly it's the, it's the end of the world. I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm mad. I want mine. Do we see a little bit of that in Jonah? You took my bush. How dare you? I just want to lay down and die. You know, privilege is a wonderful thing. It's so cool. And I, gosh, we are so, so blessed. And I don't want anyone to take my privilege away from me. I really like it. Um, but, but wow, how quickly it moves to entitlement. And how quickly entitlement moves to hatred, anger, resentment. When everything's handed to us, how quickly we become ungrateful. How quickly we focus on, on, I need my bush because I don't want to be hot. And you know why I don't want to be hot? Because I want to be very, very comfortable while I watch my enemies be burned to the ground. And if you don't give me what I want, God, 
I'd rather just lay down and die. Next thing here, no cheeses. Privilege begets entitlement, begets anger. And, and, the, and the crazy thing about privilege and entitlement, the reason that the anger happens is because we become focused on what we want. It's, it's all about me, right? Jonah's biggest problem is that he knows the way to treat the Ninevites, and God doesn't. And he refuses, refuses, refuses to change his heart. And so I wonder, I mean, you know, if you're like me, I mean, what, what, what really stokes you up with anger, right? Is it the people who aren't wearing a mask? Is it the people who are wearing a mask? Are those the things that are, we're investing all of our time in? The people with Trump flags, the people with Biden flags. Are those the things that are really, really getting us like, hyped up mad? And if so, is that maybe a sign? That the, the things that are really causing us rage and anger, are those maybe a sign that we're missing the thread, that we've, we've lost contact with what God's after? Let's see what God's after. This is a great uh, God's response. We can cycle through that one. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, Jonah? The great city. There's 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And the animals. What's really interesting about uh, the situation here is that uh, the people of Nineveh, remember, they still don't know who God is. Jonah didn't tell them. Jonah, Jonah said, he was like, bad news, 40 days you're going to die. Didn't tell them anything else. And they cried out. They had to cry out to, they cried out to God and using the general word. They don't know who Yahweh is. They still, after they've repented, they still have no idea who God is. Because Jonah is like, eh. And Jonah, you're, you're, you're crying about your bush. Crying about all the things that your PlayStation, your 10 million, you're crying about all that. And you can't just spend one tear for 120,000 people who don't know anything about anything. One of the interesting things about the book of Jonah is this is how it ends. This is the end of the book. Okay? It ends with God asking this question. We don't know how Jonah responded. In fact, if I had to guess, I would say that Jonah probably didn't respond well. Jonah probably said, those 120,000 people deserve to die, leave me alone. We don't know that. I mean, we can hope that Jonah, you know, turned it around. and, and so on. But the, the point of leaving it like this, leaving it this question, is for us to stop thinking about Jonah and start thinking about ourselves. Right? We're supposed to put ourselves in the position of Jonah. We're, and God's supposed, he's asking us, hey, do you think maybe uh, you could be concerned like I am about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? Also, their animals. It's very interesting. God uh, seems to care very much about uh, the animals um, because God's the creator and they're his creatures that he's made. Right? And so he's like, he's like I made these people. I made these animals. You, you can't you couldn't just... And so Jonah's left open. It's, it, Jonah's left open as an invitation, right? It's like, hey, shouldn't I be concerned? And, and, and likewise, shouldn't you be concerned with these things?
Jonah's implicitly asking a question. Hey, so <laughs> the book is asking a question where you got Jonah, who is like the all-time worst messenger of grace. He does everything he can to not be a messenger of grace. He phones it in from start to finish. He's, his heart is hard. And, and, the, and the point of the book, of God asking that question, is all of us like, hey, where have you, have you, are you a messenger of grace or are you phoning it in too? Are you out there bringing uh, the love, the gracious love that I have to people, or are you just hoarding it for yourself? You, you know who I am. You've met me in Jesus Christ. You know that I am gracious and merciful. You know I don't want to punish you, these people. You know that I didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but through him to save it. You know that I'm relentlessly committed to people, that once they become mine, I love them to, to no matter how far they go. You know all these things about me. Have they changed your perspective? And now are you willing, are you willing to, to do what Jonah couldn't do and go and be the genuine messengers of this message to the world? Or do you just not care about those 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? You're still convinced they deserve it. I didn't call you. I didn't throw my grace on you. I didn't save you. I didn't do all those things that you could just sit there. I did those things so that you could be a part of me spreading that to others. Maybe even your enemies. Maybe even the people that you don't think deserve my mercy and my grace. But if I, Yahweh God, have compassion for that great city, that great violent evil city where the people practice awful things like murder and child sacrifice, if my heart goes out even to them, shouldn't that be an invitation for you to join in? To have your heart pricked too. So that you can be a messenger to show them life. Life in Christ. Freedom from judgment and hell and sin. Last thing in your note sheets. God is inviting us to bring Jesus to the whole world. And this is a tough one in this day and age. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, in fact, I'd go ahead and, I mean, the next slide is a question, right? Like, are you, you know, does your heart break for those who don't know Jesus? It's becoming harder and harder for my heart to break, especially for those that I see as persecuting the church or coming after us. I mean, we're doing this book study on a Tuesday, every other Tuesday. By the way, I think I'm going to have to skip that because we have to postpone it because I think I have a finance committee meeting, but I'll send an email. Um, but this book, Live Not By Lies, it, it's, it's showing how, you know, we are in a part of a culture where the people who hate us aren't kidding. They really hate us. And it's becoming very, very difficult for me to be compassionate because I think that they're out for my blood. But men, the Assyrians, they were out for blood too. They had taken part of Israel. Jonah's first prophecy was that we're going to get that part back. His hatred for these people was born out of their hatred for him. And so one of the questions is, are we, is, is, is anything that we're doing actually reaching out 
to even not just our enemies, but to our, our communities, our neighborhoods, the people that we work with. Are we doing that? We, we're, and and if, we, if we're not, there's probably a reason. Probably the reason is it's become very, very difficult in this culture to be open about your faith because there's a strong pressure to like, hey, let's just keep your personal stuff at home, you know. There's a strong push for that. And, and so maybe we're in a place where we don't even know how to be messengers of grace anymore. We need like a whole new tactic, a whole new way, a whole new strategy. That's very possible. It might be that you all, we all want to be these messengers of grace. We just don't know how yet. If that's the case, I want to invite you back next week. We are going to look at evangelism. We're going to try and see, uh, looking at the Apostle Paul and the way that he, um, the way that he told the gospel in, in a context very similar to ours, what we can do, how we can become part of a conversation with the people around us where, where if our heart does start breaking for them, how we can break through to them in ways that are uh, not um, you know, super, super uncomfortable. But the first question is, does your heart break? And if not, remember that while we were yet enemies of God, he sent Christ. While we were yet sinners, he saved us. In two weeks, we're celebrating Easter. And on Easter, we need to be a people who are messengers of the grace of God, that that the victory has been won Sin has been broken. The enemy is defeated. That message of grace has to be on our lips because our culture is dying without it. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we know you to be a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who does not wish to punish, but instead a God who wishes to welcome us in through the name of Jesus Christ. God, for those of us who are having a hard time, break our hearts. Break our hearts for even our enemies. Break our hearts to recognize that our enemies are people who are bound up with lies, enslaved by the enemy, destined now for eternal punishment. And in that, God, let us our hearts break the way that yours breaks for them. The same concern you had for 120,000 people who didn't know their right hand from their left, God, may that same concern dwell in our hearts for those we see as our persecutors and our enemies. May we not be so bound up in our own entitlement, our own privilege, and our own disgust at at the things that we think we deserve but we don't have. Instead, God, let us have your perspective, your desire, your love, your mercy. And may Jesus be on our lips. In and through him we have salvation and forgiveness and new life. May his name be on our lips, but the Spirit's power be projecting our words. And may we be your messengers of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.